So this morning, uh, we're picking up in our study in Acts here, as you see, and our, the title of our message today is, The Gospel is for Everyone. And uh, just, you know, want to remind us of that fact. And of course, as we go through the book of Acts, this is, um, you know, this is how it all began. And we want to keep in mind that the things that were happening back then are things that should be happening today and potentially uh, can be happening today. So here in our text, we have the story of a businesswoman, a fortune teller, and a prison guard coming to faith in Christ in the city of Philippi in Macedonia 2,000 years ago. What I want us to see is that although times and places change, yet people's needs don't change. We're going to see some real similarities between these people and us today. Uh, So uh, people's needs don't change. The power of Christ to save and transform lives doesn't change. Uh, The gospel is still for everyone, regardless of who they are, uh, where they're from, uh, what they have or haven't done, and um, what they have or or don't have. So that's still a a reality today. And so that's where we're going to focus today. But first, let me just kind of catch us up to where we are here in the story. Uh, Those of you that have been with us, you remember that uh, Barnabas and Paul, they had a disagreement, so they separated. Barnabas took Mark, and he's gone to Cyprus. Paul and Silas have set off for southern Galatia, and they picked up a young disciple and helper uh, named Timothy on the way. And uh, Galatia... most of these places that are named here are in modern-day Turkey. So if you have a Bible map, uh, you can go and you can, you can find them there. But if you looked at the, the map of Turkey today, um, that's where most of the things that we read about uh, transpired. So they, they picked up Timothy. They're planning to go into the province of Asia and uh, that the, the major city of the province of Asia then would have been Ephesus. And yet it says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Nexus Spirit, it says, didn't allow them to go north into Bithynia. And so they finally arrive on the coast. They come to the city of Troas there on the Aegean Sea. And no doubt uh, they were weary and perplexed because... You know, after all, they're trying to go into these places with the gospel, but the, the Spirit is not allowing them to do that. So there in Troas, Paul had a vision, and it was a vision of a man from Macedonia calling them to come and to help us. And so they concluded uh, that the vision was from the Lord, and they set sail for Macedonia. So now they're going to cross the Aegean Sea. And they're going to go into Macedonia. And although the, the world wasn't designated as it is today with uh, the various continents, you know, we have seven continents. We kind of break the world up into that today. Uh, back then, this was all part of the same empire. But they were 
if you were to look at it today, they were stepping uh, out of ministry on the continent of Asia, and they were coming to minister in Europe. So this is the first um, mission venture into what we know today as Europe. So three things really quickly to just touch on. Number one, uh, the Holy Spirit forbid them. Think about that. That's kind of weird. They want to go with the gospel. And so they try to go to the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. Uh, So then they try to go to Bithynia, which is up in the northern region uh, along the Black Sea area there. Same thing. The Holy Spirit says, nope, don't go there. How does the Holy Spirit say don't go there? We don't know. Uh, Maybe the circumstances just didn't allow for it and it became obvious that God was blocking the way. Uh, Maybe there was some kind of illness or something that prevented them from going. Maybe there was even a prophetic word that just said, that's not (laughs) the place to go. Um, However it happened, they began to understand that the Holy Spirit was forbidding them. But the question would be, why? Why would the Holy Spirit tell them not to go to a place where they intended to go and share the gospel? Well, a couple of reasons. One of them uh, could have been that others were already going in that direction, but they didn't know about it because they didn't have the kind kind of communication and perhaps that was the case. We know that Peter, the apostle, uh, from his letter, he had ministry in the area of Bithynia. So perhaps there was already something happening there. Or what is probably true, um, even more than that, is that the timing wasn't right. Because Paul will go to Asia, but just not now. He will go later and he will establish the church in Ephesus, and he will spend plenty of time there. So all that to say, sometimes we might want to go in a certain direction, but the Lord is going to prevent us from going because it's not the right time to go. Or God knows why um, we shouldn't go there, even though we might think it's a great idea. And so he will uh, redirect us, and that's what happened here. So how did he redirect Paul? He, directed, he redirected him through a vision. So second thing to note is, uh, again, and we've seen this before, but let me remind you, supernatural guidance. And the reason I want to remind you of that is because, remember, the things that happened then still happen today. And, and we have to keep coming back to that as we study through the book of Acts. This is history, yes, but it's also prophetic in that uh, what God was doing then, these are pictures of of what God is going to do all the way through all of the the ages until Jesus returns. So we today can expect and should look for supernatural guidance, divine guidance. God has a plan. He has uh, something for us, and so we need to seek him and get that direction from him. The third thing really quickly is, notice Paul has a vision of a man who's saying, come over and help us. And and it says here in the text that the man was actually pleading, come over and help us. So a really interesting thing, Paul didn't know anybody in that part of the world. He didn't know what was going on, but of course God knew. 
And just like God knows today, God knows all around the world where there are people that need help. And so what he did then and what he will do now, he will um, put it on the hearts of his servants to go and to help those who need help. So those are just three things I wanted to quickly touch on. But I want to look, as I said, I want to look at these three people. Because the gospel is for everyone, and I want us to see the three people that are highlighted here. I want us to see how different um, their lives are, but yet they all of their lives converge here in Philippi uh, around Christ and the gospel. So the first one is Lydia. And let's just pick up in um, verse uh, 11. Real quick, therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, that's the port there, and from there they uh, went by foot to Philippi, which is the foremost city of Macedonia, a colony, and were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she had, and, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. So, um, Lydia is the first person here. Um, just a really quick backup for just a second. Um, this, this team consists of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But if you look at verse 10, it says this. It says, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. There's another person that's part of this team that's just joined this team and he's the writer of Acts, it's Luke. So this is where Luke becomes part of Paul's ministry team. Uh, we don't know exactly all the details about Luke's uh, background. We know he was a physician. Uh, we know he was a Greek, and perhaps he lived in Troas. Somehow he now gets connected with Paul and he becomes part of the ministry team and goes there with him. So. Paul's practice was to go uh, from, from city to city, as we've seen him, he would first go to a synagogue. A synagogue was a natural place to start because he knew that there would be an audience there. He could share the gospel with them. It would be predominantly Jewish, obviously, but there would be, uh, there would be others that were there. There would be proselytes. That would mean non-Jews who had converted to Judaism. And there would just be these God-fearers, these people that were interested in the, the God of Israel. So that's where he would start, but there's no synagogue in Philippi evidently uh, because he doesn't go to a synagogue. Now, there needed to be, in order for a synagogue to be established, there needed to be 10 Jewish men. So if 10 Jewish men got together, they could start a synagogue. So either there were not 10 Jewish men in Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony, it was very much a Roman community, but there were plenty of Jews in Rome, so Seems like there could have been Jews there, but because there wasn't a synagogue, either there were not enough Jewish men or they just, Jewish men didn't really care to start a synagogue. So if there was no synagogue, they would 
they would go near to a river. They would try to find a place where there was running water and they would hold a prayer meeting there. And so Paul finds out that that's what's happening. So it's on the Sabbath where they normally would have had the synagogue uh, meetings. On the Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily held. And so there he meets this woman and she is, notice, uh, named Lydia and she is a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Now, to be a seller of purple, now she's from Thyatira, she's from across the sea. She's from uh, that city of Thyatira, which was famous for its dye. And even if you think about it today, when royalty, um, the colors of royalty are purple, crimson, dark red, those have always been associated with royalty. And of course that was true in ancient times, it's, it's still true today. And it's associated with royalty because it was very costly. So you couldn't usually get a garment like that unless you were wealthy because of the cost of it. Well, Lydia, she was a businesswoman whose business had to do with um, selling this fabric. And so we see that uh, she was an entrepreneurial woman. She was a businesswoman. She, she had her act together. Uh, we also see from the text that she worshiped God. She wasn't a Jewess, but she was a worshiper of God. So at some point in her life, she had come into uh, contact with information about the true God, the God of the Bible. So she was a worshiper of God. She hadn't converted and become a Jew, but she was a worshiper of God. So she was entrepreneurial. She was religious in the best sense of the word. She was sincere. She was successful. She was successful. She was wealthy. How do we know that? She has a house that can uh, accommodate Paul's team. Now, we know of four people on Paul's team. There might have been more, but she says, hey, come and stay at my house. So this implies that she had a large house. And so as we look at her as a person, we see that she was a successful uh, businesswoman. Her name is Lydia. Um, a, kind of an interesting point is Thyatira was a city located in what was the ancient kingdom of Lydia. So some texts read that she was a Lydian woman and others like our text here read that Lydia was her actual name. So we'll just go with the fact that that was her name. Um, but this is, this is who she was. And it says about her that the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. So as you look at her, again, she's, she's just, uh, she's, an, she's a lady who's all together. She's got her act together. She's... She's, you know, making money. She's successful. She's uh, moral. She's upright. She's, you know, serious about life. And she's interested in spiritual things. And so as Paul speaks, God opens her heart. It's almost like um, she was in a place where she just needed to sort of be taken by the hand and just walked into the kingdom. That's what happened with Lydia. Now we come to a second woman who is like the, the 
extreme opposite of Lydia. And remember, we're talking about the gospel being for everyone. So Lydia is one example, but now verse 16 says, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. And so this is the second person. Notice she is a slave girl. She is owned by men who made a profit from her. So she's basically being prostituted by these men, now not sexually prostituted, but she's being prostituted in the sense that they are making money off her. She's a slave. She has no right. She's owned by these guys and they are using her to make money. What, what were they using her as? She possessed a spirit of divination. She, could, she was a fortune teller. And so she could tell people their future. Now, um, the word here that's translated a spirit of divination, the, the literal translation is she had a, a Pythian spirit or the spirit of a python. That, that's literally uh, what it says. And one commentator gives us insight to that. He said, the reference is to the snake of classical mythology, which guarded the temple of Apollo and the Delphic Oracle. The Delphic Oracle was a place, you know, where you could go and you, there was this oracle, a, you know, supposedly a, a message from the gods. Years ago, I was traveling in Greece and went to um, that particular place. I mean, it's long since you know, that doesn't function like that anymore, but that's what it was uh, at the time. And so Apollo was thought to be embodied in the snake and to inspire his female devotees with clairvoyance. So this was not an uncommon situation. There were many women who were apparently possessed by this spirit. And they were clairvoyant. They could tell people uh, about their future. And that's how these guys made money. Now, there was another way that they were referred to, and they were referred to by some as ventriloquist. Now, when we think of a ventriloquist, you think of somebody sitting with a, you know, a dummy, you know, a doll kind of a thing, and they're able to throw their voice around and make it look like the doll is actually talking and all that. Um, why, would they, why would they refer to these women as ventriloquists? Because out of their mouths came these strange, strange voices. So they would often have uh, deep groveling, like the voices of men, kind of just real weird and spooky or screechy or, you know, and it was because of that that they were referred to as ventriloquists. But um, the case in point really was obviously clear from the text there that they were literally demon-possessed. That's what they were. So the, the writer here says, being possessed then as now can have terrible psychological consequences So she, this woman, had lost her identity and her individuality as a human being. And socially, she belonged as a slave to her masters, but psychologically, she belonged to the spirit which controlled her. So this woman is, like I said, she's like the opposite. I mean, think of like a, 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 
seriously, think of a woman who is like a crack addict and who is a prostitute and who's under the authority and dominion of like a pimp. This is what's going on here, except not that there wouldn't be a demonic connection in what I just described, but there's a definite demonic thing that, that's happened here with this woman. So she is in um, a place that she cannot possibly extricate herself from. She cannot free herself. Now, Lydia, she was a worshiper of God. Like I said, Paul speaks, God opens her heart. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot for her to kind of walk across the threshold into the kingdom. But this woman is bound. She is a literal slave physically, but she's also a spiritual slave to these demonic powers. And how can that be altered? Well, look what happens. So this girl, verse 17, followed Paul and us, Luke says, and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit came out of her that very moment. My text says that very hour, the Greek text means it, it happened instantly. So here's this girl that is utterly helpless in this horrific situation and that fast she's set free. God delivers her. Paul recognizes that she is indeed possessed of an evil spirit. And so he uh, cast that spirit out of her. So it was instant. It was something that she couldn't do for herself. It was something that God did for her. So you see, we got two radically different um, conversion experiences here from two radically different people. But the third person we come to is the prison guard. So the prison guard, what, what is his background? Well, um, almost certainly the prison guard was an ex-soldier. So he was an ex-military guy. Uh, why do I say that? Because Philippi was a Roman colony. A Roman colony was a, it was basically just a, a little Rome located in uh, a different geographical space somewhere in the empire. And what, what the, the Caesars, what the emperors would do is they would send usually retired military people in who, these guys were Romans through and through. So he, they would send them in to establish uh, Roman administration and to bring Roman culture into this place. And they were retired military, so of course they would do other jobs. And so it's most likely that this prison guard is an ex-soldier. And thinking about him being an ex-Roman soldier or a retired Roman soldier, uh, he would have been a hard guy. <laughs> Roman soldiers were tough. That's how they conquered the world. So he would have been a hard guy. Uh, he would have shared the same prejudices that were communicated here by uh, the slave masters who were angry that their prophet was now lost because this girl got saved. And what did they say? They said, these Jews, they've come into our community and they're saying things that are uh, unlawful for Romans to uh, engage in. So you see the prejudice there. 
he undoubtedly would have shared that. Um, but you know, he was a cruel guy as well. And how do we know that? We know that because of the treatment of the disciples. So look at what it says here. It says, um, verse 22. So, you know, they've been brought before the magistrates and then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes. This is Paul and Silas and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And listen to what it says. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this is severe treatment for the crime. This is, this is punishment beyond the crime. So, you know, these guys aren't um, revolutionaries. They're not violent. They're not, uh, you know, trying to cause any kind of a ruckus. Uh, they're, they're just preachers. And yet they put them in the inner prison. Now that should have been sufficient. I mean, that was even too much. They just put them in a jail cell. But they put them in the inner prison. But then it says, but he fastened their feet in the stocks. Something that was unnecessary, but it was done out of cruelty because putting people in the stocks was cruel. It was extremely, extremely painful situation. So we could say that about him as well, that he was cruel. And I would say just kind of looking at a general picture, he was a man who was empty. He was a man who was cynical. He was probably a man who was tired, just as it is so often, you know, you meet people who have lived a long, hard, rough life, and they're just, they're tired. And he was guilty. He was probably uh, weighed down by much of his past and the things that he had done, uh, perhaps even things that he had done as a soldier. So, so that's him. But before we get to the climax of his story, let's look at Paul and Silas really quick. So think about it. Here are two men who are condemned for a good deed by wicked men. So these wicked men, these slave owners who are prostituting this girl, making a, a, a financial profit off of her, these, these are wicked guys. These are like just the, you know, the worst guys you can imagine. But it looks like they win because their accusations hold and Paul and Silas are condemned. They're put in jail. Now, remember, too, that they were on a mission for God. They're on a mission for God, and look where they end up. They end up in a prison. But remember, Paul is not unaware of the cost of proclaiming the gospel. Because on a previous occasion, we noted how he was stoned, an attempt to kill him, and he was dragged outside the city. They thought he was dead. You know, he wasn't dead. But now here he is, and he's in prison. And um, yet, you know, today, of course, when we think of, well, we're going to go on a mission for God, beating in prison is not part of the itinerary. We're not thinking that that is going to happen. In these days, it did happen, and certainly it still does happen in certain parts of the world. Um, but notice 
how they handle it. What happens with them? It says here that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So again, they knew what they were getting into. And, you know, interesting, I didn't even bring this up last service, but um, the rest of the chapter tells how after the fact, um, the, the, the magistrates who put them in jail, they send a message to release them. And Paul says, no, no, no. You tell the magistrates to come and they're going to release us because we are Roman citizens and they beat us openly, uncondemned. And so Paul is going to put them in a really difficult place because a Roman citizen had rights and his rights as a Roman citizen were violated and that could cost these guys their position. Uh, it could even land them in prison for what they had done. But, but here's the point. Why does Paul save this till after the fact? Why doesn't he say beforehand, hey, hold on, I'm a Roman citizen, you better watch out. Apparently he doesn't say that. I mean, he might have and nobody listened, but, um, but it, apparently he doesn't say it. But perhaps he didn't say it because he knew that the Philippians themselves, that they would undergo persecution and he's kind of setting the standard for them. He's kind of showing them, you know, this is, this is part of it. And he's showing them that you can be courageous through it and you can trust God through it. That might've been why he didn't speak up until afterwards. But all that to say, him and Silas, their response is not um, disappointment. It's not complaining. It's the opposite. They're praying and singing hymns to God in the prison. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakening, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, why was he going to do that? Because if you, if prisoners escaped under your watch, you were put to death. That was the rule. So as far as he knows, every, the, you know, the, the jail cells are all open. Everybody's gone. He's about to kill himself. But look what happens. It says that Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, think about the person that I just described to you, this Roman soldier, this jailer. What happens? He, he's a hardened guy, as I said, but all of a sudden, He's trembling and he's saying, what, what must I do to be saved? Now, you have to wonder, well, how did he even think of asking that question in the first place? Did he hear uh, somehow what Paul and Silas were about? Did he hear about the fact that they were preaching? You know, maybe he heard the story about them delivering this girl from demon possession and all that. However, he knows 
about it. He, he does understand that this is what the issue is here. But the thing that I think is really interesting is the fact that he's trembling, which shows he is afraid. He is afraid, which is out of character for this person. He's afraid. What, is, what has impacted him? Well, of course, I think it was their witness in singing, but the earthquake certainly uh, got his attention. And here's the point that I want us to see here. Lydia, she's ready. God opens her heart. She's kind of just taken by the hand, walked into the kingdom. The slave girl, she's got no hope. She can't do anything for herself. The Lord just delivers her from the demon instantly. This guy is so cynical and so hardened and so uh, fearless how are you going to get through to this guy? Well, God's got a way. He's going to send an earthquake, and this is going to scare the heck out of the guy, and this is going to bring it to the place. Here's the point. God will use what it takes to get us to himself. He will use what it takes to get people's attention. And for some people, like a Lydia, for example, Things in her life have paved the way. Her heart is tender. She's open. She's soft. She hears the message. She's like, I want that. That's how some people come to faith. Other people, they don't even have that option because they're, they're under the control of the devil to the extent that they, they couldn't free themselves. They couldn't even come to the point of, of understanding that this is what needs to happen. And there are those cases where you see where God just steps in and he does something that is unexplainable humanly. He just delivers them from that. But then there are those who God has to rock their world. He has to shake up their lives in order to get their attention. And he will do whatever it takes. And that's what we see, I think, here with this man, that his pride and all of those things, his hardness, uh, these are the things that would have uh, caused him to never want to give the time of day. I don't need what is a savior, you know. I'm rough and and I've you know been in battle and I've seen it all. And um, you know maybe like ex-military people today, or you don't even have to be ex-military, but you can develop that that kind of attitude. But man, this earthquake just wakes him up. You know, I have seen over the years on several occasions. Uh, people who have been through crisis, they've been through some sort of um, disastrous type of a situation that, that we might look at and think a person's response to that would be atheism, but that's the very thing that brought them to faith in Christ. You know, a, a lot of times we hear critics say things like, well, you know, whenever there's a tragedy or something, I mean, even something like the shooting that we just heard about, uh, you know, sometimes those kinds of things, those are horrible, horrible things, right? But do you know that those kinds of things have led people to faith? It's so rocked their world. It's so shaken up their, their, just their view of everything that they've realized, man, I, I don't have answers for this. I need, I need God. I need Jesus. I told a story in the last service about a friend of mine who was uh, a very uh, successful photographer. He was... Um, you know, kind of just moving up in that world. And by his own admission, he was just as wicked and vile and perverse as anybody could be. And uh, what happened is he had a severe nervous breakdown. 
And he told me later, he said it was that, it was that losing his mind that brought him to Christ. He said, had I not lost my mind, I would have never, ever considered turning to Jesus. But when I didn't have my mind, when I was insane, I had nowhere to turn to. And he gave his life to Christ, and that's 22 years later. He's still solidly walking with the Lord. But I, I just remember when he told me that, he said it was, it was that insanity that, that pushed me to Jesus. And so that's what happens. And again, this is the point that God, we see three different people, uh, uh, altogether businesswoman, uh, a totally enslaved fortune teller and a hardened ex-military, but God has a plan to reach and he does reach each one of them. And that just reminds us that the gospel really is for everyone. It's for everyone. There's no class. There's no race. There's no, um, you know, financial position. Uh, you know, before the Lord, none of that matters. God loves people. And he's, he's reaching out to people. He wants all people to come to know him. And listen, here's to me what is really fascinating, and I want to kind of wrap things up with this. But what's really fascinating is remember this businesswoman, this demonized fortune teller, and this hardened jailer, they are the first converts in Philippi, which means they are the first members of the church there. That, that's, that's how the church started. It started with Lydia and then her family and this jailer. And as we read on here in the story, uh, he asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. But this is the beginning of the Philippian church. It's this, it's this diverse group of people that this church starts with. And now listen, here's what I want us to get. This church will partner with Paul throughout the rest of his ministry. They will support him with prayer and they will give him financial assistance. And understandably, this guy saved their lives. And so they are forever indebted to him as their friend. And when you read uh, the epistle to the Philippians, you get the sense of this very close relationship that Paul has still, an ongoing relationship with the people. But that's the second thing. They will also provide, the, the, this, this group that begins this church here, they will also provide every successive generation of Christians instruction and education through the divinely inspired epistle they would receive from the Lord through Paul's pen. So think about this for a second. How many of you have ever read Philippians? You ever read the, Paul's letter to the Philippians? How many of you have ever been blessed by Philippians? I know I have numerous times. I mean, I, you know, 
Philippians 4, 6 is that passage that says, be anxious for nothing or don't be worried about anything, but in everything with prayer and uh, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Man, that's a great passage. One six, he that has begun a good work in you, he's gonna complete it until uh, the day of Jesus Christ and many other passages. But think about it. That letter was written to those people and that letter has come down for 2,000 years now to bring instruction and edification to the people of God. And here's the point, how amazing. God takes a businesswoman, a, a demon-possessed fortune teller and a hardened soldier. He saves them, and then he does something that is going to impact the world for the rest of history. How in the world is that? I mean, that, but that's the stuff that God does, and that's what I want us to see because, listen, many men and women all around us are potentially just like these men and women. They are people who need Christ. And just like Paul and Silas did, and just like they would undoubtedly go on to do, uh, they need to be told. We need to tell people about the Lord. And it doesn't have to be preaching. You know, Paul sat down there at the riverside and he just talked to these ladies. And Lydia she believed that her heart was open and she responded to it. And I mean, look in the jail. They, they didn't really preach anything. They were just singing hymns. They were worshiping the Lord. This guy saw, man, there's something radically different here with these guys. And he's like, what do, what do I do to be saved? There are people all around us like these that the Lord wants to lead to himself. And listen, these might be the very people who will be the foundation of a new work of God in a place that desperately needs the gospel. See, that's the thing that I, we have to think about. Um, I, I've thought about this so many times over the years of just my own life and ministry. I've thought of how many people, how many lives have been connected and impacted through that local church, you know, oftentimes I've done weddings and I've, I've stood there thinking, wow, you know, these people met here. And, you know, I know this guy came from this background and this, this girl came from this background and, you know, how in the world would they ever get together? But they did. And they got together right there, that congregation. And God touched their lives and then he brought them together. And then, you know, they get married and they have kids and their kids grow up and their kids go off and do amazing things. And you're like, wow, you just see this, the way God works. It's so fascinating to me. And so I wonder how many people in different places across the country and around the world are just like that guy that Paul initially saw in the vision that got him to go to Philippi. How many people are there around the world today who are crying out for someone to come and help them find the Lord and know the Lord? You know, and some of them don't even know that they're crying out for that. I mean, look, again, look at these people. Who was the man in the vision? Paul gets to Philippi. There's no man. There's women at the river. Was the man the, the jailer? 
Well, if he was, he wasn't even saved until Paul got there. But I, I wonder how many people there are in places who are, are calling out. They don't even know that they're calling out. They don't even know what they're calling out for. But God knows what they're calling out for. And, and God wants to send somebody. And again, who would have ever imagined as we look at it now, 2,000 years from the time that these things took place, and as we could turn a few pages in our Bible to the letter to the Philippians, who would have ever imagined that this letter, like I said, that has impacted people for 2,000 years for good, who would have ever imagined that it would start with this handful of people, this unlikely group of people? You know, it, but, but this is the way God works. He's, he does this over and over and over again in history. And some of you know the history of the ministry here. Some of you don't know the details, but you know, it was in 1961 that there were just a handful of folks with a little church that decided they wanted to call themselves Calvary Chapel and they needed a pastor and some things happened and there they were uh, in Costa Mesa and just, you know, here we are and we just want the Lord to do something with us. And um, four years later in 1965, they invited uh, a man named Pastor Chuck Smith to come and be their pastor. And the rest is history. And who would have ever guessed that that would be the history? You know, I travel all around the world. And you know, people all around the world, they know that Costa Mesa is a place. <laughs> and you know why they know Costa Mesa is a place? Because of this place. They don't know it for any other reason. And think about it. I mean, who in the world, uh, anywhere outside of Southern California, would even know Costa Mesa is a place? I mean, what is in... I live in Costa Mesa. I like Costa Mesa. But, you know, what is in Costa Mesa that's going to give it worldwide notoriety? Nothing. We don't have Disneyland. We don't have any kind of great museums or... You know, we, we don't have anything. We just got, you know, a few good Mexican restaurants. Uh, I mean, those, you know, those, those might be worthy, but... I've never met a person that said, man, I, Costa Mesa, I've heard of that. Is that, that where that Mexican restaurant is? Oh, is that where that cool coffee place is? I have actually heard that in some places. But God put this city, and of course, we're in Santa Ana, so Santa Ana too. Uh, but, you know, the Lord put this on the map. Who would have ever thought that from a place like Costa Mesa, all around the world, people would know about what God did and what God is doing. So that to me, it's just so amazing. And, and again, um, it, it's still happening. And listen, like I said, some people don't even know that they're crying out, but others do. You know, we have a thousand requests for churches to be started. We have a database with 1,000 requests. Please come and start a church in our community. Please come. We'd love to have a Calvary Chapel ministry in our town. And that's across the U.S. And it's in all different places around the world. And so, guess what? God wants to save people. He saved us. And he wants to use us. And like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, uh, in some cases, he wants to send us somewhere and connect us with people whose lives are going to impact lives around them, whose, whose very uh, 
assembling together will one day impact the community and maybe even on out to the world. So that's the way I think we need to look at this, this passage here. God is still working today. He's still wanting to do today the things that he's always been doing. And so let's realize that doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what our background is, and there's all kinds of diversity amongst us, but man, God, God's gonna use that all as we just yield ourselves to him. So Lord, we pray that the story here would just be a, a catalyst for us today to just have a, a fresh perspective on what you do, what you want to do, what you're going to do. And Lord, that we would yield ourselves to it as your people. Lord, we, we don't want to just be the people that are sitting on the sidelines or sitting in the stands watching Lord, we want to be engaged. We want to be involved. And Lord, we know that there are those people pleading, come over and help us. And Lord, we just want to make ourselves available to do that as you would lead us to do it. So, so help us, Lord. Help us to give ourselves over to you to the extent that all that's in your heart to do in and through our lives can happen. We pray this in Jesus' name.